I'm Dr. Nick Harrington from Western Governors University. I'm an instructor for Pacific Northwest History. This is module three, part one, for the Pacific Northwest History course. This course is fascinating in its own way. Um, unlike the East Coast, where there's a standard narrative of all the things that we know, Christopher Columbus, the Mayflower, George Washington, all that stuff, there isn't much of a narrative to the Pacific Northwest. That means that for most of us, there's a lot of data, a lot of information, and it's gonna be difficult to arrange this in a way that makes sense to us. Cohorts help a lot with this, and I hope this podcast will too. This is not intended to be a replacement for the reading, of course, but it's another way to arrange the information so that it makes some kind of sense to you. But to go back to that information, the information that has no clear narrative to hold on to, um, that's nothing new, and there's nothing wrong with not having all the answers. History as a discipline is full of movements and even fads about how to interpret the vast and sometimes minuscule amount of information that we have. Some, some things like the great man theory are no longer taken seriously. Others like using a Marxist lens to understand the information is always present, always has advocates, always has detractors. But in this course, it's largely up to you to find a way to arrange the information in a way that makes sense to you. The good news is that the Pacific Northwest faculty, myself included, would love to talk to you about this and share with you what makes it work for us. And the other good news is that, like many of you right now, the Europeans that were first coming to the Pacific Northwest were attempting to sort through and, and uh, understand all the data from the new world that they were getting too. We take this for granted, but the new world, the Americas, um, it was literally a new world in the eyes of Europeans, Africans, and Asians that were coming here. Some of you may have heard of Mansa Musa, one of the most wealthy people that ever existed. He was the ruler of the Mali Empire in Northern Africa, and he's known largely for going to pilgrimage, and he was so wealthy on his way to Mecca, all the economies collapsed around him um, as he moved. He took over the Mali Empire after his brother, Mansa Muhammad, took off with a fleet of ships to see what was on the other side of the Atlantic. The Chinese were also looking around for what was beyond the Pacific, and they found a lot of stuff. Some people argue they came as far as the Americas, but eventually, either way, they gave up exploration and international trade as being too expensive. All of these people carried their hopes, fears, and imaginations with them on these journeys. It was, of course, uh, the Vikings and later Columbus, who we can verify without a doubt, first made it from the New World from the Old World. And this New World is different. Uh, there were different birds, different animals, different food. The people all had different customs and believed different things. It'd be a bit like finding a portal to another planet or another dimension. And because things were so alien, everything you learned about was coming through the bias of something else. It was literally like trying to describe a duck-billed platypus to someone who had never heard of it. it. It barely made sense. And in most cases, the person describing the platypus in this example would be recounting information they heard from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone. Europeans then had to use what they knew and try to make sense of new information coming from the, from the new world into this context. There was no Wikipedia, there was no internet, no books about the place, really. They were in the process of being written, and sometimes they had good information, sometimes there was bad information. And so stories developed. Uh, one such was an old Greek guy named Juan de Fuca, who told a British ambassador in Syria about a time he was on a Spanish ship, and they cut through the Americas, rounded a corner, and they found a lot of Native Americans who had lots of gold. 
Like many Europeans, the British heard this story and they wanted to find this passage, the Northwest Passage. There are a few reasons to start out with this story. And one of them is that the Native Americans were made something of a focus. Um, in a lot of ways, this history is told from the perspective of the Europeans and other people coming to the Americas. But the Native Americans weren't just twiddling their thumbs waiting for the Americans or British or Mali or whoever to come give them a history. Only now is the history of the Northwest really being written. And more recently still are the voices of the First Nations being applied as if their fate was not to be speaking English or French or Spanish or Arabic or anything else. And we need to take their perspective into account too. The other reason to take this into account is because the Pacific Northwest hold, held a certain part of the imagination, or at least it seemed to, um, with the Northwest Passage. But the Northwest Passage is not called the Northwest Passage because it related to the Pacific Northwest. We think of the Northwest being called that because it's the Northwest of the United States, but that was in no way clear at the time. The world is round and that presents some problems orienting direction. But also the United States came into being relatively late, um, and yet the title of the Northwest still existed. The Northwest Passage was named as such because it was northwest of Europe. Juan de Fuca, the Greek sailor, told the story of a dream of completely bypassing what is now Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and Alaska. Asia, and China in particular, is where the money was. And for most Europeans, the Americas were in the way. The Northwest Passage would allow direct trade with Asia to bypass the Americas. The Europeans, having been through centuries of fighting religious wars amongst themselves, used this lens to understand the Northwest. The Northwest, the Americas and the Northwest in particular was in the way. And in order to frame information coming from them, they had to use their what they knew. And for them, it was a religion. Very briefly, the Western Roman Empire became Catholic as Rome fell. The Eastern Roman Empire became Orthodox and survived for a while. Uh, the schism between Catholics and Orthodox is beyond what we're looking at here. But the Greeks, Russians, and other Eastern Europeans tended to remain Orthodox, while the French, Italians, Spaniards, Portuguese remained Catholics. The Germans, between the two, produced the first Protestants, considering themselves part of Western Europe, but protesting the authority of the Pope had over Christianity in the West. The British, Dutch, and many others became Protestant. And the general rule, and this has many exceptions, <clears throat> is that any Christian that isn't Orthodox or Catholic in Europe is a Protestant. Lutheran, Calvinist, Anglican, Presbyterian, Anabaptist, on and on, they're all Protestants. And all these people, the Protestants, the Catholics, the Orthodox, they all fought each other for generation after generation. Remember that before the United States called for a separation of church and state, there was no separation of church and state. To be French was to be Catholic. To be Catholic was to be Spanish. To be English was to be Episcopalian. To be Swiss was to be Calvinist. The church did not work with the state. The state was a representation of the church, and the church was a representation of the state in a way we don't think about things now. And this is a worldview that Europeans were carrying with them when they came to the New World. When they got new information, this was the filter they used to understand this information. The Portuguese rounded Africa and the Spanish found the New World, so the Pope divided the world in two between the Spaniards and the Portuguese, each getting half. The Northwest was sort of casually given to the Spaniards without really knowing it was there. 
After hundreds of years, the Russians eventually came around the poking around the Pacific Northwest. And from their perspective, of course, it was a continuation of the Siberia that they were taking and consolidating. Remember also that the Russians were an orthodox power. They weren't overly worried about what a patriarch in Rome who got too far big for his britches decided about Spain and Portugal 300 years prior. Besides, the Russians, like everybody else who came to the area, the Europeans found furs and other resources. The Spanish weren't really prepared for the Russians coming in. Um, they had short of control in the rest of the Americas and were working their way up. That was the general plan, perhaps. Um, but it, the Spaniards really never had much of a presence in the Pacific Northwest, though you'll read about a couple um, instances where they did. The Russians weren't the last interlopers. Um, France was also poking around uh, North America. Uh, the French, like the like the Spanish, were Catholics, and uh, they were they were happy to go poking around. Uh, they often met and married members of the First Nations in the Northwest. But it was eventually the British. They were Protestant with an open disdain for Catholics that started a big permanent hold on the Northwest through their monopoly, the Hudson Bay Company. And I'll talk in a little bit about how that developed. They grew rich off of the animal pelts they ran into, and uh, situated on the Pacific, they were able to trade directly with Asia. The British had their war with France over the northern parts of the Americas, um, the Seven Years' War, or as we call it, the French and Indian War. And in time, uh, the French were able to uh, help some of the British colonies break off and start the help start the United States. And three presidents into the Americans run, Lewis and Clark were poking around the Northwest. The United States was officially neutral, though it had a mostly Protestant population. There's this widespread belief at the time that Catholics could not exist within the Republic. So missionaries were sent out to save the inhabitants of the Northwest and save the Republic. The United States was coming. Robert Gray, an American explorer found the Columbia River and he named it after his ship, the Columbia, obviously. The United States made the Louisiana Purchase, expanding themselves further west. The Americans, the United States was coming. Uh, this created a pressure as everything was gobbled up. To go back a bit, the Hudson's Bay Company, as the United States was growing and consolidating, was a British monopoly that had not crossed the Rocky Mountains. The French Canadians out of Montreal started their own fur company called the Northwest Fur Company. And uh, they had they were forced to go over the Rocky Mountains to uh, escape the competition from the Hudson's Bay Company. But the Americans were still coming. John Astor, a New York industrialist, set up the Pacific Fur Company, uh, the only one of these fur companies that was set up actually on the Pacific in the new city of Astoria, the first American city west of the Rocky Mountains. These fur companies set up uh, that were set up in order, Hudson Bay Company, the Northwest Fur Company, and the Pacific Fur Company, um, they also um, were gobbled up in that or order. John Astor, who never came to Astoria, sold the Pacific Fur Company to the Northwest Fur Company, which eventually sold everything to the Hudson Bay Company. And this is when the Hudson Bay Company suddenly found itself as the de facto European control in this part of the world. And they focused on fur, chasing away settlers so that they could fully exploit the environment. They eventually preserved uh, salmon, exported timber, all these natural resources, though fur was the dominant uh, market. And they participated with this market in uh, 
California, Hawaii, and Alaska. And uh, the Hudson Bay Company adapted to their new environment. They began to sell via the Columbia or the Pacific instead of direct lines over the land of the east. They used cedar canoes like Northwest uh, natives, and they began eating salmon instead of bison. And this went further. Centered in what is now Vancouver, Washington, the local Hudson Bay Company came to be staffed with Catholics in what's now the Northwest. John McLaughlin and his supporters were in uh, the Northwest with these Native Americans, and these Native Americans, while not uh, Christianized exactly, had been partially converted by French Canadians um, and indigenous people who had previously been converted by French Canadians. Jesuits, uh, Catholic priests were coming around to convert everybody. And of course, um, at the time, before the Mexican-American War, the Pacific Northwest shared a border with Mexico, which was mostly Catholic. But the Americans were still coming. The Hudson's Bay Company attempted to eradicate any of the aquatic animals that uh, Americans might run across to try to dissuade them from coming in and making a profit. But the Americans were still coming. Uh, one American, Jedediah Smith, came to Oregon. And remember, the Northwest is all Oregon at this point. Um, he came poking around. The Hudson Bay Company comes up to him and they say, are the Americans coming? And Smith says, oh, no. And then goes home and writes a letter to the U.S. government saying that the Americans should be coming. Through this, the United States and the British both ended up with some kind of claim on the area. Both the U.K. and the U.S. circled each other and entered a kind of Cold War, weighing their claims against each other. This sort of ended in 1846 when the British and the Americans agreed that the 49th parallel would be the border between Canada and the United States. And this was muddled with islands in the Northwest um, off of the mainland. And you'll read about the apocalyptic final battle between Britain and the United States um, in a conflict called the Pig War, which was apocalyptic really only for the pig. Commerce and religion were um, what the Europeans in the New World were worried about as they began reaching the Northwest. And this is how they interpreted things, money and their religion. While the Europeans were trying to understand how to contextualize what they were finding in the Americas, we should talk about the Americans themselves, the indigenous people that the Europeans were attempting to understand. They're the same people they were trying to break into their own worldview. The first thing is, of course, that there is no monolithic group Native Americans. In the same way, there's no monolithic group Europeans. Like Europeans, the Native Americans, even in the Northwest, had different languages, different customs, different conceptions of the universe, different food traditions, and so on and so forth. And like the Europeans, they were also overlapping um, languages, uh, relations, religious, religious uh, orientations, and uh, other traditions all existed um, and often overlapped with each other. Some of this is difficult to understand for those of us that grew up with a European um, education. A basic thing like a map. It seems very straightforward. France is clear about its borders. Then you have uh, Germany on one side, Spain on the other, and these other European countries. And you can complicate this a little bit because that seems very tidy. The United Kingdom is Britain, which has the kingdoms of Scotland, Wales, England, and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has no geographic boundary. It has no traditional boundary, most of, uh, or much of Ulster anyways, in the Republic of Ireland. And despite the attempt to draw a religious boundary line, it didn't work very well since there are plenty of Catholics in a place like Derry willing to be appalled when they were told that they were now a Protestant people with a Protestant government. So maps can be complicated. 
And the attempts of Europeans to impose maps on the Northwest is even more thorny since there was no conception of 18th century European borders that the Native Americans had. Many Americans were semi-nomadic. Many had multiple family identities that would change over the year. There were people speaking the same or similar languages that absolutely did not want to live together. There were many that spoke the same languages that absolutely did want to live together. In this way, the attempt to build a simple map by Europeans was difficult. It was difficult to go by territory. It was difficult to go by uh, relations. It was difficult to go by language. And this is still something that vexes uh, those of us who grew up with a European education and trying to get a feel of who lived where exactly. This is all to say that it'd be virtually impossible to give a podcast series about native Northwesterners in totality. But I can give some examples of how they dealt with and understand the new people who were coming to the land. In the Northwest, this is a process. Disease came first, and we have some idea of how catastrophic this was. You wouldn't be wrong to think about it as like a real apocalypse, at least as bad as the Black Death and probably much worse. The societies that emerged were changed. They lost up to 90% of their population. Think for a second about what our society would look like if one out of 10 people were the only survivors after a major event like that. It would look like a zombie apocalypse or like Mad Max. It's likely that there would be people we never heard about that assumed everyone in the world had died, walking alone from societies that no longer existed to societies that no longer existed. And all of these things are may not be remembered at all. And in the Pacific Northwest, it's very likely that this hypothetical survivor would have no idea why it happened. The survivor was not at the first giving. He was not in an Aztec army fighting Cortez, not meeting with French trappers by the Great Lakes. Everybody just died. And there were other things. New plants began growing. Dandelions and other weeds brought over on accident. New animals, too. Some brought over by accident, like rats. Um, But also, one day, horses come poking around. And many societies began to reorganize themselves to accommodate this change. Uh, People like the Nez Perce became expert horsemen. And just as a note, I always think it's uh, fun to know that there's something about human beings that when you see a horse wandering around, if you have never seen it before, you think, I bet I could climb on that and ride it around for a while. In time... Native American societies continued to develop or developed anew. It was still shocking uh, for these people um, that had survived this apocalypse. And when Europeans came poking around, this was still shocking too. The claps of people, we're told, were just as clueless upon seeing a European ship as the Europeans were in trying to understand the Americas. The claps up like the Europeans attempted to understand Europeans through their previous understanding of things. The ship looked like a whale, the masts looked like trees, and the Europeans, covered in hair, looked like bears with human faces. The claps up in this example were not powerless. They did not decide that Europeans were gods or better than them in any way. They grabbed all the Europeans and all the supplies and they became rich, because at the end of the day, human beings are human beings. And though Europeans eventually got the numbers, the First Nations were no victims waiting to become Europeanized. Another example are the Nez Pierce. They'd heard of Europeans long before they'd seen them. They had an inkling of these strangers, and uh, they had an inkling about the religion that the Europeans were trying to spread to everybody. They knew about how much Europeans liked map and defined properties with fences in a way that natives didn't understand. There was even 
eventually a direct witness, this girl who was taken by the Blackfeet and passed around to the east until she found herself living by the Europeans on the east coast. She worked her way back to the Nez Pierce and told them about these strangers. Um, but they, the Nez Pierce, had trouble understanding and believing that this was possible. Then one day, Lewis and Clark show up. Um, with them are uh, a variety of other people. One of them is York. And the Nez Pierce have to use what information they have to make sense of this. Was York in charge because he's the biggest guy? And like the Clatsop, they took note that the Lewis and Clark expedition and everybody in it were hairy. And they smelled terrible. Maybe these weren't people, but monsters. But the girl that had returned, now an old woman, was pretty clear that these were the Europeans she had met on the East Coast. Again, the culture had to take the information that they had and then apply it. And the Nez Pierce were merchants. They could see wealth, and if they were good to these hairy strangers, maybe they could make a tidy profit out of it. They were still suspicious, but eventually, after spending time with uh, Lewis and Clark and their expedition and the Nez Pierce, they got to be friendly with each other. They played jokes on each other, have races, and they got on well enough that both Clark and York and maybe others left children with the Nez Pierce. But there was trade, there was understanding, and ties were made. And there's a pretty great document that goes into what happened to the children in more detail in the course. But the point is, these were word, worlds colliding. Uh, the natives, like the Europeans, had to use their culture and background to understand new people. And this wasn't always easy. An exchange of goods really helped, though. I mentioned that the Europeans came in a wave of nationalities. And at the time, there was no real difference between nationality and religion but they still participated in the same market and everybody still wanted to get resources. And the First Nations were here for that. They had long been trading with each other. Uh, this involved sometimes putting prohibitions on trade with one group, only trading some items to other groups, participating in large trade routes that went all over both North and South America. The First Nations uh, were merchants, just like every other society. When Europeans arrived and asked where the animal skins were, the indigenous people had the answers. They knew how to consolidate their knowledge, they knew tricks for getting the pelts, and they knew how to maximize their profits from the strangers. Uh, they'd play two competing customers against each other, they'd force potential buyers into uncomfortable situations to keep them unbalanced, and they knew how to utilize European demand for all kinds of things against the Europeans and make a profit out of it. Sometimes this caused friction, a group, and I'm making this up, uh, let's say the Clatsup um, wanted to get some otter or beaver pelts from the Willamette people. The idea being they could take these pelts from the Willamette, sell them to the Europeans, and uh, get a lot of nice goods from that. So if they did so, you can imagine the Willamette people would be a little irritated that they traded uh, pelts which for not that much money to the Clatsup, and now the Clatsup had rifles. Uh, this is a hypothetical exchange again, but you can see how this has a bit of a destabilizing effect. Or it could. But perhaps the biggest problem was that disease made a big comeback. Before, as I mentioned, 90% of the natives had died uh, after Columbus arrived. But more regular contact with ships brought more disease. These ships housed a lot of people in cramped quarters, and you can imagine they were perfect petri dishes for disease. And this spilled into the Northwest and killed more people. At the same time, for the First Nations, there were plenty of European men looking to marry into their groups. 
Sometimes this was a way to tie groups together. Sometimes it was an exploitive relationship and the European would take off back home, leaving his family behind. And sometimes over time, Europeans and their descendants would become the natives themselves. It depended on the community, the people involved and everything else. But with more Europeans, their, their worldview came as well. The Europeans brought their uh, religion. Native Americans tended to not see a religion in the same way um, Europeans did. For Europeans, it was very much a binary, or this or that. And for Native Americans, that was never quite true. I once um, asked a Native American I used to work, work with, he was a spiritual, uh, he had played a spiritual role in his tribe. I asked, uh, in those stories, is coyote supposed to be an animal or a god or a person? And he replied, why do you think there's a difference between the three? So when the Jesuits, these Catholic educators, came to the Northwest, they had already had years, um, hundreds of years, learning to convert Europeans, Asians, and Africans. When they met Native Americans, they often did so on the Native Americans' terms. They learned the language. They didn't rely on the written word, but participated in the oral tradition. Um, they believed in infant baptism, which made it quicker to uh, baptize any Native Americans that wanted to be baptized. And um, remember, for the Native Americans in the Pacific Northwest, Catholicism was something of a known entity. Um, French Canadians, Mexicans, um, and others, even the Hudson Bay Company, had uh, participated in Catholicism before. Portland, Oregon was the second Catholic archdiocese in the United States. The Protestants, on the other hand, um, were different. Most Americans were, and uh, British, as mentioned, were Protestants, and they had an anxiety um, that Catholics might be using Northwesterners, native Northwesterners, to kill European Americans. Um, they also did not have previous contact with the natives in the same way that Catholics did, uh, nor were they looking for a slow change of engaging with the native Americans. Uh, many Protestants were hoping that the indigenous people would see a blinding light like Paul in the Bible, and then they would cut their hair, start wearing European clothing, chop down all the trees, and begin farming. Only then would they be uh, able to be baptized. I'm generalizing here to make a point, but by and large, the indigenous people were not interested in religious binaries to begin with. They were even less interested in destroying their own culture so they could do backbreaking agricultural work in exchange for adopting a foreign religion. And on top of that, just as the Europeans had trouble understanding Native American perceptions to, to land, the Native Americans also did with the Europeans. And this led to other conflicts, um, not just misunderstanding people's cultures. The indigenous people in the Northwest used to have seasonal controlled fires that helped maintain certain animals, keep groves, promote the growth of desirable plants, things like that. When Europeans arrived, uh, they often justified in taking the land because they didn't think Native Americans were using the land. They were, they were just using it differently. And of course, the land had been used for generations by Native Americans and the way they burnt the land to promote these things. And they were getting it just right. Uh, you can imagine if you were a European coming over and you found this nice little grove, nobody's around because the Native Americans were seasonally gone. They built this European, builds a cabin on this nice little bit of land, starts setting up shop, and then the Native Americans come by and ask, who are you and why are you here? 
and the European thinks, oh, now that I built a cabin, suddenly people are interested in this land. And it's, often this was done with bad faith, don't get me wrong, but this is an example of just them not understanding each other's traditions and the way they live life, and this causing friction. The Whitman Massacre is one of the founding events of the Pacific Northwest, and it takes both this confusion over land and the confusion over religion and disease into account. Very briefly, the Whitmans were missionaries on Cayuse land. The Cayuse, like everyone else, had been ravaged by disease but survived, and the Whitmans came with a promise of converting the natives into good Protestants. The Whitmans grew frustrated with the Cayuse's unwillingness to pick up agriculture, and the Cayuse grew frustrated with the Whitmans' declaration that they owned the land now. The Whitmans at one point tried to kill wolves in the area by leaving out poisoned meat, and some of the Cayuse would come by, see some meat hanging there, <clears throat> not know the intention, eat some of it, and then grow, get poisoned. The Whitmans also wanted to stop Native Americans from getting into their garden. Again, the Cayuse were used to coming around, around this land, eating the edible plants, and using the land communally. To stop that, the Whitmans sometimes poisoned their gardens to try to teach the Cayuse not to eat from it. Again, the Cayuse were poisoned. And so when measles broke out, and measles were one of the big killers at this period, when measles broke out and the Whitman said, let us just inject you with this, the Cayuse had had enough. This was a European disease that had come over. They've already been poisoned twice by the Whitmans, and the Whitmans were grating on them, saying that this was their land now anyway. So a massacre happened. And after the uh, Whitman massacre, a militia was put together led by Cornelius Gilliam, who was compared to the notorious Catholic killer Oliver Cromwell, to lead a war against the Cayuse. And through this period, despite setbacks, the First Nations remained shrewd politicians. The Cayuse turned to the Hudson Bay Company and other Catholics to campaign for an end to the war. And this did end, but there had to be a series of executions. Each of the Cayuse to be executed converted to Catholics before their ex execution loudly and prominently. Now, I don't know this, but I would suspect that a lot of this was a last sign of contempt for the people who were killing them. The Native Americans knew enough to know that the Protestants and the Catholics didn't like each other, and if the Protestants were going to execute them, they were going to become Catholics just as a means to mess with their enemies. This is to say that the natives knew how to leverage this kind of thing against Europeans. They knew how to maximize their trade, they knew how to leverage their advantages, and they knew how to keep the Europeans reliant upon them despite attempts to do otherwise. However, disease continued to reduce their population and the Europeans and the Americans were coming. And if there's one thing I learned in my academic studies, it's that you can't fight math. It will be coming for you. And once the merchants were fewer and the settlers, the European settlers became increasing uh, numbers, that's when a lot of these problems start. And I will look at that next time.